I just want to thank the band. That was amazing. Uh, they got that song, I think, on Tuesday at my request because it goes with what I'm saying. So would you just give them a hand? The, the song saved my life that they did during the offering. It, it was amazing. Okay, so get ready. You ready? Here comes a 20-sentence survey of the whole Bible. I'm going to do it in 20 sentences. And I'm going to tell you about the second most important concept in the Bible next to Jesus as the Christ. So I'm helped here by two authors. They believe that Paul was trying to teach us this very survey in his New Testament writings. So sentence number one. Let me say that Yahweh is another name for, you know this, right? God. So Yahweh is another name for God. Number one, the Shekinah glory of Yahweh, which was fire and cloud that came down from heaven, first filled the tent of meeting that we find in Exodus as Moses led the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land. So that's when it first showed up. The first stone temple of the Jewish people known as Solomon's temple was built around 950 BC. On the day of dedication... The same Shekinah, glory of God, fire and cloud from heaven, descended and filled the temple, as we read in 1 Kings. This became the assurance of the abiding and localized divine presence of Yahweh for the Jewish people. So they knew he was there. They could see him in the form of the fire and the cloud. In Jewish thinking, this made Solomon's temple the center of the world. The center and the centering place of the whole world. So the Babylonians come, tear the temple down, took the Jews into exile in 587 BC. Think about what that did to their faith. It probably prompted a crisis of faith. Where was Yahweh? In their mind, the temple was where God lived. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and Jeremiah convinced the people that they should go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple... So God would be with them again. One of these authors points out that there's no account of the fire and cloud or the glory of God ever descending on this rebuilt temple around 515 BC. And the second temple is the only one that Jesus would have known and loved as he walked on the earth. Now the absence of this visible Shekinah glory must have been a little embarrassing for the Jewish people. They were claiming God. They thought he was in the fire and the cloud. Where was he now? One of these authors suggests that this explains the growth of Phariseeism. That was a belief that was strong in Jesus' time that if we obeyed laws more perfectly, ritual, priesthood, Sabbath purity, then the glory of God might return to the temple. This became a common pattern in moralistic religion Our impurity supposedly keeps Yahweh away. They tried hard, did everything they knew to do. The fire never descended. In Acts 2, now we've had the life, death, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus when he went up in that cloud like Jeff was talking. He's no longer visible on earth. Peoples of all nationalities were assembled, awaiting what was to come next. And then it came. That seemingly lost fire from heaven descended not on a tent, 
not on a building, but on people at Pentecost. And all peoples, not just Jews, were baptized and received the Spirit. Paul understood all this and drew out immense consequences for us today. He loved to say, you are that temple. This gives rise to his entire doctrine that individual humans are the very body of Christ. So there you are. You are that temple. I am that temple. In us now resides the spirit of God. We often talk about the body of Christ. And if you grew up in church, you were told that your body was a temple. So you wouldn't do this and you wouldn't do that. More of a physical kind of arrangement. But when did you last consider that you hold a place in history that compares to the tent of meeting or Solomon's temple? Where worship of the living God is sacred and supernatural. Where the living God houses himself by choice. That describes us. So if we're going to avail ourselves to house the very Shekinah glory of God now usually termed the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit, we do want to get that right. The picture I want to paint today is this. The only way to get it right is to understand that we probably have part of it wrong. Which part? So here we are with two scary thoughts. As the holder of the Spirit of God, we need to do our best to move forward knowing that we'll bump into Him At an ever deeper level. What will we learn? More importantly, what will we have to unlearn? And what if we get it wrong? What is the tragedy of a temple who misuses the very spirit of God? But I'm going to follow these two scary thoughts with one that should bring relief. We will get it wrong. We will absolutely get some of it wrong. Here's a brilliant theologian. He's brilliant. Still alive, Um, his name is N.T. Wright. He says, the point of discourse is to learn with and from one another. I used to tell my students that at least 20% of what I was telling them was wrong. Problem? I don't know which 20%. I make many mistakes in life, in relationships, and in work. And I don't expect to be free from it in my thinking. That is quite the statement. May I ask you to just say uh, silently to yourself, I might be wrong. Just say that to yourself. Now, when you look at your neighbor on either side or behind you and say, I might be wrong. Not you might be wrong. (laughs) We already have that conquered. (laughs) If it's your spouse, really don't say you might be wrong. Um, And now tell your spouse, I might be wrong. It's a little bit hard, isn't it? Now, if you absolutely meant that and believe that it applies to what you perceive about the Christian faith, that some of the absolutes you've been taught could be up for discussion, then let me congratulate you. You just took an important step in the spiritual growing up process. Am I here to change your mind about something in particular? Absolutely not. I'm here to help us test our death grip 
on anything that chokes the love that our temple is responsible to share. We're often warned not to talk about politics and religion in a crowd. So you're a crowd? Let's start with politics. (laughs) And Jeff's probably not breathing right now. (laughs) He's pretty afraid if I would go that way. It's become a cultural minefield. You express your opinion and boom, an explosion of backlash comes your way. And because we are virtual billboards now with Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, we can not listen, we can pigeonhole, and we can hunker down with those just like ourselves. And we'll cream anyone who isn't there with us. Politics and thoughtful discussion, with the caveat that no one has it all right, has morphed into bashing personalities. If you carry the slightest tinge of interest or alignment with certain personalities, you're just banished from the conversation. In the spiritual realm, we've begun to function the same way. We bash authors and other leaders who put forth ideas that might force us out of our box. Where we have our faith all sewn up into this little tight wad of knowledge. One author says it like this. The average North American Christian is about 3,000 Bible verses overweight. That's amazing. We can spout them out all day long. And if they fit into our little tight wad of knowledge, we are just fine. We know or we bask in our version of knowing the do's and don'ts. What such and such verse must surely mean, what we better not have a conversation about, and the list of tidy goes on and on. Tidy and all-knowing do not a mature temple make. Tidy and all-knowing lend themselves to that death grip that we can have on our temple. We have to face that our evangelical drift is carrying us into three alarming arenas. A culture of segregation a culture of wrongful intent, and a culture of hell. Our church is made up of people whom we have established are housing the very Spirit of God. He works with our individual spirits, he activates our gifts, and he brings them together in the nurture of his church. It matters who we are as a church because, like it or not, we become known for something. And it's that something that we want to best honor The motives of God. I recently heard this about our church. Let me qualify this. A and B told C. C told D. D told E. E is me. (laughs) So I'm like five deep in the gossip chain. So I'm not pretending that it's accurate or true, but it stopped me in my tracks and it's worth bringing today. Here's what I heard. The Grove is not a real church. All they do is love people. The Bible is not taught here. Okay, so let's work backwards from the end. We hear the Bible taught every week. We know that's inaccurate. If the only thing we're guilty of is loving people, we know that lines up with Jesus. And then somehow we get to the conclusion that we're not a real church. It's a good example of a death grip. We can't bring new life into thinking that is tidy and all-knowing. Someone knows what a real church is and decides what we are and what we are not. 
This is how churches slide into that evangelical drift into a culture of segregation. And to the extent that we close the door of our minds to leadership and the change that the Spirit of God might be inviting us into, we stop maturing spiritually. In the first chapter of Colossians, Paul is complimenting that church. He's heard reports that love has been worked into their lives by the Spirit. Church, love, Spirit of God. He concludes the chapter with this. The mystery in a nutshell is just this. Christ is in you, so therefore you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It is that simple. That is the substance of our message. We preach Christ, warning people not to add to the message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. Christ, no more, no less. To make the message of Christ something that it is not carries us into a culture of wrongful intent. Remember, even if we are doing our best, we might be wrong 20% of the time. But the Spirit of God in us will bear witness to our spirits if our temple really means to become mature. If we're willing to grow, if we're willing to always allow for new life in our temple, we'll be like flowing water. Always more likely to be fresh than stagnant water. Growth is change, always. And thus the slide, I'm I'm sorry, a culture of wrongful intent sets itself up against God and his purposes. It's where our temple quits listening to the spirit and becomes its own leader. We fall into the trap of so misrepresenting the whole of God in scripture, the whole of God in scripture, that we begin to do more harm than good. And thus thus we slide into the culture of hell. Hell is simply rejection. No matter where it is or how you're experiencing it, it is rejection. To the extent that we reject the Spirit of God that wants to join with our spirit selves, we can establish hell here and now. The Spirit of God is the mystery. Appearing at the tent of meeting as Moses led the Israelites to the desert. Reappearing at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Being conspicuously absent while Jesus walked the earth. Why? Because he embodied the spirit of God. They just didn't put that together. And now finally coming to earth again after Jesus ascended into heaven. It is this giant, beautiful picture of life as a whole. One into which we are invited. Our spirit joined with the spirit of God. Our brokenness made whole. By simply joining forces to understand and express a love so extreme that it changes us from within. Our death grip is loosened and it's replaced with new life. We know that we don't want our temples to slide into cultures of segregation, wrongful intent, or hell. We sure don't want a death grip that leads us away from God's purposes for us as individuals or as this church. So, we're going to apply this to a real issue. We're going to test out this theory. This is a real enough issue for any church. Women in leadership. Women standing right here. 
And since I'm standing right here already, will either reason me out of here or I'll just finish, get to the end. But the point is, can we talk openly about it? That's what we want to learn to do. The death grip says I shouldn't be allowed here. We base that on some cultural realities expressed in scripture. In the Old Testament days, women were seen as possessions, as less than men. But in the whole of the Old Testament, women like Esther and Deborah, they were asked by God himself to save a nation from genocide and lead soldiers into battle. That doesn't support our tidy and all-knowing posture that women are less than. In the New Testament, the culture dictated that men could not teach the law to women publicly. Jesus turned that culture of segregation, wrongful intent, and rejection right on its head. One author says it like this. When Christ came, he violated societal norms for gender relations and made new ones that more accurately reflect God's heart toward women. In John 4, he talked to an immoral woman about theology, worship, the state of her relationships, and the state of her soul. In John 8, he pointed out to men who were judging the woman caught in adultery that she was no more guilty than they were. He received Mary's act of worship as being more meaningful than anything that was going on in the synagogues. He welcomed women into his inner circle of friends and disciples. Jeff referenced that. And they were the last at the cross. Women were the first at the tomb. And Jesus appeared first to some women and gave them the joyful responsibility of informing the disciples that he was alive. This means women were the first to bring the good news of the gospel, that Jesus was alive. That's the pesky thing about Jesus. He turns our tidy and all-knowing on its head and does it through the Spirit of God, bearing witness to our spirit. The author goes on to say something startling. An examination of Scripture's themes reveals that more than a hundred passages in the Bible affirm women in roles of leadership, and fewer than half a dozen, that's six, fewer than six appear to be in opposition. Yet we as Christians have built this elaborate system of belief and practice on only a few difficult passages. These passages have loomed so large that we have allowed them to color everything that we read. We've lifted these passages out of their context, out of the context of the broader um, themes of Scripture, and we've elevated them to the point that they become more important than the overall message of Scripture on the topic of women. This author recognized that what had been held in the church for so long could no longer be validated. She, who had lived right under these rules and thought they were absolute, she was so alarmed that she needed to unlearn that she began a long period of silence with God. The only way to change what is going on in your temple, if the Holy Spirit is asking you to change something, is to spend time in solitude. She spent a long period of time seeking God in solitude and silence. 
She was determined not to attack everything with her previously held cognitive points of view, but rather to listen to God himself as his spirit interacted with her temple. That's quiet time. I don't, I don't know what else you call it. It's somewhere where it's just you and the Holy Spirit. A wise person said, to try to know another, we must be willing to see the world through their eyes, not simply our own. If we listen as well as we speak, then connecting would take care of itself. What better person to get to know than God? Therefore, we have to be willing to see the world through his eyes, listening fully, ready to change our direction to go into his. I'd like to invite the band back on the stage. The song they sang before the offering said this. I'm the pastor at your church. For all these years, you've listened to my words. You think I know all the answers. But I've got doubts and questions too. Behind this smile, I'm really just like you, afraid and tired and insecure. If you look me right in the eye, would you see the real me? Would you take the time to save my life? Does that thought alarm you that Jeff or any other leader might have doubts and questions? I hope it inspires you. I hope it breathes new life into our journey here together. I hope you can't escape the spirit of God wanting us to grow up. God and Jeff together are growing us up, kicking and screaming or otherwise. C.S. Lewis writes, some of you know C.S. Lewis, just an amazing writer, read the Chronicles of Narnia. He writes, the real problem of the Christian life comes the very moment you wake up every morning. (laughs) Well, that's reassuring. (laughs) All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists in shoving them all back. And listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view. Letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. And so on, all day. Standing back from all your natural fussings and frettings. Coming in out of the wind. We can only do it for moments at first. But from those moments, a new sort of life will be spreading through our system. Because now we are letting him work at the right part of us. It is the difference between paint, which is merely laid on the surface... And a dye or stain that soaks right through. Or he says it another way. (laughs) He could only say it like this. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are those eggs. And you cannot go on indefinitely being an ordinary, decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. So are we hatching? Are we growing up? Are we allowing our temple to be informed and activated by the very spirit of God? Releasing our tidy, releasing our all-knowing in exchange for whatever God has for us next. 
This is the moment when we become fully human, fully alive. And what does that look like? Jody has said it like this. When we come alive, God's power is visible. When we come alive together, an eruption of God's power is visible. This, my friends, is church. We want it to be our church. Let us pray. We are a danger to you, God, when we stay holed up in our little bastions of tidy and all-knowing. We are a danger for you when we settle for no less than spirit-led love as the driving force for our temples and collectively for our church. That is the template for new life. And new life is the very gospel itself. May we bring this new life to ourselves and to our community. Thank you for growing us for inspiring Jeff, for bringing into this place such diversity and giftedness housed in temples who want to be whom you want us to be. How grateful I am to be a part. Amen.